I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing you know a lot of churches today are going to you know address the the topic of the coronavirus and the threat and and why we should not fear and uh, really that's I can't think of a better thing and a topic to discuss during this time than the resurrection because really the church has a major role to play. I mean, whether we like it or not, we have a major role to play even in this time to give hope, to preach the gospel, and to minister to people who are in need more, now more than ever. I was looking back at different occasions um, during which places were shut down, very similar to our situation here. And I went back and I was researching the, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 and how that was affecting um, American churches and uh, in the East Coast area, especially Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., New York, they were kind of the hardest places hit. And they were instructed to close down their churches. And uh, many of the churches got very creative and um, they, they met outside or they um, basically just told the, the, the members, hey, worship at home and we'll come and visit you in, in a later time just because the, the epidemic was so intense. But as the decline, um, as the Spanish flu went into decline in the area and people started to recover, um, one of the first things people asked for was the the churches to come back and the churches to reopen as an essential meeting place for people. And one writer puts it this way, um, the effect of the churches in the surrounding areas. This is uh, regarding a Washington, D.C. church. And they, it's, one writer says, In the influence of the churches upon the minds and souls of men, in quieting through strengthened faith in God, the panic and fear in which epidemic thrives, the churches are potential anti-influenza workers, fit to cooperate helpfully with our doctors and our nurses, of whose fine record in these times that try men's souls, we are all justly proud. And so how important it is for the church to be involved in preaching hope and how important it is for us today to study the thing that gives us hope, the the thing that is the foundation of our faith, the thing in which there's power, and that is the resurrection. And we're going to talk um, not necessarily, we're going to talk, of course, about our, our eternal souls because that's the thing that people think about when they are confronted with a crisis like this. Uh, what's going to happen to me? What have I done with my life? Where will I go after death? Those are major questions. Um, and we often forget about the, the body. Because the body, to us, in these times, is a place of vulnerability. It's a place of risk. We're afraid, uh, and you know, we, we want to wisely social distance ourselves from others um, because of the vulnerability of our body and their body. Because suddenly the body, which sometimes you know is our is our best friend, absolutely goes downhill, and uh, we come to see the body as more of a, a jail cell than a um, place in which we can you know uh, have fun or, or something we enjoy. And I think Paul kind of captures this in Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-three. Uh, it won't be on your screens, but um, just something I wanted to read. Paul says. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And it's so important to remember that, yes, our bodies are broken. Our bodies are virtual jail cells. You know, our, our bodies are our weakest part of us, if you will. But 
As we've been studying and looking at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, we should remember that the, one of the implications of his rising from the dead, Scripture tells us, is that we will receive a new body, a perfect body, a body that God specifically designs and will give to us. We as people, as creations um, of God, are made to be embodied. Our bodies are not forever going to be our bane or our weaknesses, and one day we will have new bodies. And so that's what we're going to study today is our resurrection body and how we can bear a new image and how we will bear the heavenly image. Um, so we're going to start reading what Paul is going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. Paul continues on with his discussion of the resurrection, and he brings up a, kind of an objection or a question that someone has about the resurrection, and this is regarding the general resurrection, if you will, of, of many people rising from the dead. And verse 35 says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And so Paul addresses two questions, and they're, they're more like uh, really objections about the resurrection. And to paraphrase what the questions are, they're, they're kind of like, well, how exactly does it happen? How is that supposed to happen? And the, the second question is a lot more soft, and it's uh, more of a question of, well, how does it work exactly? What kind of body do, do people come in? And in answering, um, Paul will give kind of three general points, if you're taking notes, about what we uh, would call the general resurrection, about our future resurrection through Christ and that is, number one, our resurrection is paralleled, uh, parallels nature. Our resurrection transcends nature. And uh, number three, our resurrection is our triumph over death, our final victory. And so, just to address the, the first question, um, we'll, we'll kind of read forward. We'll read a few verses. In verse 36, Paul replies to the question kind of hostily, and he says, you, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, for there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and of the, glo the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man became a living being. The last man became a life-giving spirit. And we'll stop right there for now and kind of break down what Paul is saying right here. Because he's, you're like, he's talking about science, he's talking about different kind of bodies, and then he's talking about stars. What exactly is he, going to, exactly is he saying? So, in answer to the first question 
um, that, that Paul is addressing. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? It's, it's a fair question, but you should understand, and we should all understand kind of the question, uh, or the, the underlying worldview behind the question. If you asked a Greek, a regular Greek, of, uh, in whom you know, the Corinthians were a people, uh, part of Greece, if you asked an ancient Greek, they would have said that the resurrection is just an illogical thing. It's a, it's a logical fallacy because it's against the laws of nature. One um, Greek philosopher from actually the second century said this. His name was Celsus. And he was challenging Christian teaching on the resurrection, on rising from the dead. And he says this, For what sort of body, after being entirely corrupted, could return again to its original nature and the same condition which it had before it was dissolved? As they have nothing to say in reply, and he's kind of rebuking Christians, they escape to a more outrageous refuge by saying that anything is possible to God. But this is this philosopher's point. He says, Indeed, neither can God do what is shameful, nor does he, does he desire what is contrary to nature. You understand, Celsus and the Greek conception of God is that God is nature. God is these natural laws, and God will never contradict himself, and therefore God cannot do this sort of thing. But, you, as, as Paul is trying to say, don't have a misconception of the God who can do this. And on the contrary, Paul would say that our resurrection parallels nature. And that's what he gets into here in these next couple verses. He talks about sowing a seed and um, bringing up um, a wheat or some kind of other stock or a corn or something like that. And he's making, a, he's making a point for really our comfort. So his hostile rebuke, is it, it sounds kind of harsh at first, but he's saying, I need you to understand who God is and what God does in nature every single day. And so he gives them a kind of a basic example that they might see, you know, just walking out one day. And that's of an example from farming, that people are planting seeds and seeds are actually growing. And so anyone who has a basic understanding of farming knows that life does continue and that life is coming out of the death of the seed that is planted in the ground. And before um, he, he even discussed, he started talking more deeply about the resurrection, you'll probably remember that he returns, he, he calls the resurrection, he relates the resurrection to kind of a harvest in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 22 or 23, earlier right here in the chapter. Remember that, that, that the idea of a harvest, that Christ is the first fruits of that harvest, that it's the expansion of the idea of sowing and reaping. And he's making that correlation of something that do, always occurs in nature. And he also elaborates on this idea saying that when you plant a seed, you're not planting an entire tree. You're, you, you know, you're not planting an entire plant. That's merely transplant. That's not true you know, sowing. And so he, he's trying to make a correlation between this thing um, and to our resurrection bodies. And so by the sheer order of nature, we, we see it every single day that this is a possible thing, that life can continue on. And Paul's point is that God is still governing life. Notice in um, verse 38, beginning in verse 38, God is the one who gives 
these plants and whatever else that grows, he's the one who actively gives the body. And so Paul would say, well, God is creator continuing to sustain these things, and that's why things are living, and therefore we should trust God with our bodies. But of course, before he, he goes to that point, he, he talks about the flesh of animals and the, the flesh of all these kind of different things. But his point is in revealing the diversity of creation, the diversity of animals, the diversity of plants, and the diversity of stars, is that there is one unifying factor in all these things, and it's that God is maintain, maintaining these things intimately involved in creation. So the doctrine that we are teaching right here of the resurrection is an outgrowth of the doctrine of creation, that God is creator, and he can do these things, and he is fully able, and it's not against nature, if you will, it's not against his own nature to bring a body back from the dead. It's actually more common than we might think, and it's more plain. And so the God who brings the sun into its full radiance, the God who creates fish, it's the same God, and He's doing all these different things. So if God is creator, God is also resurrector. That's what Paul is trying to say. And he brings up, interestingly, the, the idea of radiance and, and glory. And that, that simply just means how, how God brings something into a creation that is beautiful, and God knows how to make things beautiful. And Paul transitions from this point to the fact that God knows how to raise us back up from the dead and make us beautiful, if you will. Make us imperishable, imperishable give us eternal bodies. And so our second point here, after the fact that our, trans, our, our resurrection parallels nature, Paul's other point right here is that um, it's not enough to simply parallel nature. God also transcends nature, our natural common order that we see every day through the resurrection. Both are true. So inasmuch as kind of God has ordered things in creation and has control over every single detail of our body, Paul still draws kind of a major distinction between what our body is now and what our body will be. And I'm very thankful that our body will be something better than what it is now. And to be certain, Paul makes the point that resurrection is a supernatural act. And so he says in verse 42, it's, it's so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Notice the direction Paul is taking in, when talking about our future bodies. He talks about going from perishable to imperishable. Going from dishonor, the fact that it's shameful to die. Isn't that, isn't that the tragic thing that, you know, we, we, are, we build kingdoms, we have CEOs that have billions of dollars, and then they die, and they're just as weak as any other person. It's a shameful thing to die. It's, it's a dishonoring. But Paul says our future bodies will be glorious. Our present bodies are also weak, as he says, but our future bodies will be powerful. Our present bodies are simply natural. They're just flesh and blood. They're corporeal, but the future bodies will be spiritual and eternal. So Paul is basically saying what, what we all would like to have in our own bodies. No aches, no pain, no fatigue, no threat of a new virus ca cropping up and, and um, threatening our, our way of life. There's no risk of, of a pandemic with this body. It's a perfect body. 
that won't get tired, that won't die, that won't break down, that won't have aches, that won't have pains. And Paul is really driving this home by the fact that God is creator and this is what he does for his people, people that trust him by faith. And so we see that the major distinction in the resurrection and it's not only a distinction between our current body and the body that is to come in the future, but we, we should distinguish it from other concepts of or things that seem like resurrection. It's not incarnation. I, I mean, it's not incarnation. It's not reincarnation. Because Paul is saying that, you know, this is our body and, and it's going to be a similar thing, but better. The quality in which it changes is the fact that it's not perishable, it's not broken down, it's not, we're not going to, in other words, we're not going to turn into a fish or a cockroach or an elephant in a later life. It's not reincarnation, but it's also not uh, reanimation. When God raises our bodies from the dead, he's not, he's not going to just breathe in new life to our desiccated old corpse, and it's like, congratulations, you got this body again. It's like getting a used car. No, it's not that kind of thing. When God raises someone from the dead, He gives them a new body in the resurrection in the future. We, when we think of resurrection, we might think of the, the places in which God raised someone from the dead in Scripture. And that's an encouraging place to look because it shows us that God can do this, that God can perform this kind of miracle. And we think of a, a place in like John chapter 11 where, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He calls him forth out of the actual tomb in which, in which he had lain, uh, laid for several days. And um, we think, oh, that's, that's a great miracle. That's one of the greatest miracles of all. But notice that we can't make a perfect correlation between even Lazarus and this resurrection from the dead because we know that Lazarus later died. You know, he, he died twice, if you will. His body wasn't perfect. His body wasn't um, invulnerable to disease and sickness. But that particular miracle was only a taste and kind of a foreshadowing of what God will do to us. God will do for us in changing us. And so, from a natural perspective, the act of dying is weak. It's not a triumph. It's, it's a defeat. But from a spiritual perspective, for the Christian, the act of dying is the beginning of a transformation. It's a metamorphosis where God will turn our old decrepit bodies into something brand new. But Paul, um, being responsible, tells us that there is a major uh, problem and there's a kind of a major distinction between kind of where we are right now in verses 44 through 45, notice that um, he says, It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And then he says, Thus it is written, the first man became a living, living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so, what, what is that exactly is Paul saying there? He's talking about Adams and, and several of them. What, what exactly is Paul trying to tell us? And basically, he's trying to convey the point that our new bodies and, and our new bodies being resurrected in the future all depends on where our origins are. Are we only 
the children of Adam, which is of Adam and Eve who fell and fell away, uh, sinned and fell away from God, and who basically delivered death to the rest of humanity, or are we the children of the greater, different, and better Adam, who is Christ? Because from God's perspective, there are two major representatives of the human race. There's Adam, who fell and delivered death to everyone, but there's also Christ, who is our true mediator, God in the flesh, and who delivers, as Paul says, life to us. He's a, he's a life-giving spirit. And so, we should recognize that we are on one or um, one or the other of these sides. Earlier in chapter 15, verse 22, Paul will make the point that's simply that, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so we should understand for our purposes, and I don't want to get anyone's hopes up here who isn't trusting in Christ, that there is a distinction between those who know God and those who don't in the resurrection. And that the resurrection comes after a time, if you will, of judgment, that God will eventually judge the sins of the world and that He will deliver those people who truly know Him and who have been forgiven of their sins. There's a resurrection to death, if you will, and there's a resurrection to life, which is for Christians. Judgment and resurrection are very closely tied. You look in chap uh, Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. Um, Daniel the prophet says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the resurrection is absolute great news for the Christian. The, absolute, uh, the resurrection is very bad news for those who do not know Christ and who are not of Christ, the, the better and more perfect Adam who can give life. And so... God can give us life. God can give us hope. And God can give us the image of His Son and the family likeness of His Son so that we can live forever. Look at verses 46-47. through 47. We'll read those again. Paul says, But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. He's making the case that um, if we have natural bodies, then we can expect that a spiritual body is, is present because of what we know about uh, Scripture. And verse 47 says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And so we, Paul's saying, you, whatever, wherever your origins are, those are the family traits that you're going to carry with you. And now he's going to say in, in verse 48, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We need to bear the image of Christ in order to have heaven. And we needed to bear the image of God's Son in order to have access to the kingdom of God in the future and have a full resurrection body. And this is an incredible promise that is to people who have Christ. But notice the, the real good news that is here, that, that we can 
have the image of Christ, that we can be um, a citizen who enters the kingdom of heaven, and that we will actually have a body that is like Christ's in the future. That's what Scripture plainly teaches, that we will have a body like Christ. Paul um, says in Philippians chapter 3, um, he actually starts Philippians, and he talks about in chapter 1 how, man, the, just, it's so tough being in the body, and he says, I wish I would just simply depart from the body and be with Christ. But he says that we will not separate from our bodies forever, that we were destined to be embodied. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, Paul says this about our true citizenship for Christians. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So if we want to know a little bit deeper, have a deeper insight into what our future bodies will look like and be like, we have a model already, and that is Christ, the resurrected Lord Christ. The things that He did, we can do. The the places where He went, we can go. You think of everything that Jesus did after He rose again from the dead. He appeared in rooms when the doors were locked. He also ate meals. He also ascended into heaven. So just like all these amazing, fascinating things that were just mysteries to the apostles when Jesus rose from the dead, those are things that are just hints of what we can do in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God. We will be like Him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 tells us this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears we shall be like Him. And this is a great promise. But Paul kind of reminds us and says, by the way, we can't achieve this in our natural state. Verse 50 says this, he says, I tell you brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the, uh, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He reminds us, after giving us the glories of what our resurrection bodies will be, He just reminds us that the kingdom of God is heavenly and that we are earthly people. That the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom and we're just simply flesh and blood. We have no inheritance of this kind naturally coming to us. We can't expect to die and immediately get raised in glory. There has to be a change to us. We are perishable. We have an expiration date. One of the decisions, you know, um, Alyssa and I often make when we go to the grocery store is what is the expiration date on this meat? You know, it's only two of us. The baby's not going to chew steak. And so we have to think, well, what, what, what can we eat before this thing expires? Because there's like a race against time every time. And, you know, people are just buying whatever they can get their hands on at this point. But so it's, maybe the point is moot. But the idea is that Paul is saying that we're perishable. We have a resurrection, uh, or we have an expiration date. We're like a piece of meat, if you will, expiring at room temperature. And one day we will go completely bad and corrupt. And what can we expect from this natural decay that we are going to immediately inherit eternal things? 
No. God has to intervene. God has to do something to us. And that leads to our final point that the resurrection of our bodies is our triumph over death. I need to make a couple timeline notes on what Paul is saying. Of course, he's saying basic truths about the resurrection that we're going to go into dust. We're, we're going to die. It's going to happen. And we, we see this especially in crisis, the reality that we are going to perish, that we are going to expire. And he says, but those who trust in Christ will be raised imperishable. We have these great bodies. And we think, Paul, that's great, but when exactly will this happen? Paul gives us a little bit of a timeline here and some indications on when we, can we expect our newly delivered body? When can we expect to enjoy being embodied rather than it being a burden to have a body? Well, Paul continues on, and we'll read... Uh, Uh, verse 51 through the rest of the chapter. Paul says this, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul starts off by saying, I'm going to introduce a mystery. And he's not talking about a murder mystery or something like that. He, by mystery, he means a truth that is previously hidden, that is now revealed. And he has this little epigrammic statement that he, he starts off with, and he says, We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. And this is, a, this is a shorthand that we should all remember in our day-to-day walks, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What does that mean, Jared? Does that mean we're going to have insomnia? No, Paul is using the word sleep for kind of a euphemism of death. He used it earlier in this chapter um, in text that uh, Pastor Robert had previously taught on that sleep is kind of a, a euphemism for death. It's a word for death. That people who are believers, when they die, they will go to sleep. But Paul is saying, we're not all going to die at one point, but we're actually all going to be changed. So this change, in other words, is more guaranteed even than the fact that we're all going to die. Why does Paul say this? Well, he says it because... Let me find my place again. He says it because... There's a point at which Christ will return victorious and He will instantly give us those bodies which will be our brand new bodies and which will signal our final victory over death. That God's not going to wait for all His people to, to, to die in order to give them bodies. When He returns, those Christians who are simply just on earth are just going to have them. God's, gonna, God's going to put those bodies onto them. And this will occur at the last trumpet. And you guys might have read that and you're like, what does a trumpet exactly have to do with this? But a trumpet elsewhere in in Scripture, it's usually a signal for God's people. And Joshua is a signal for victory, for battle, for war. 
and trumpet in the New Testament in regarding to Christ's return is the day that Christ returns in judgment and he returns for his people. And Paul says that this trumpet is also our clarion call, is also our cue for us to respond and be resurrected. So that those who have already died in past years, all our uh, generations of family, our loved ones who have died in Christ, including us who are maybe alive when, when Christ returns, they're all going to receive that changed body. There's a parallel passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul um, describes this again in verse 16 through 18. Paul says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Notice that it's Christ's command that He's saying, do this, rise again from the dead, and we'll respond because He is our Lord. And He says He's going to descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort or encourage one another with these words. And so the certainty of this resurrection is higher even than the certainty of death for the Christian. But how do our bodies endure what's going on? Look at the transformation process. It's, it's almost like it's, we're not going to naturally inherit the things that are... Um, imperishable. We're not going to inherit eternal life naturally, but Jesus is going to come and give it to us. So in other words, God is preparing His people for the place that He's going to send them. And not only that, God's people can fully embrace this song of victory. And Paul kind of quotes this here. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And uh, Paul right here is adapting a little bit of Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah 25 that God will eventually swallow up death in the way that an enemy would swallow up, um, in the way that a king would just swallow up an enemy in sheer defeat, that it will be gone forever, and that we can sing it in the future when it really is a thing, when it really occurs, and we can sing this in glory. But right now, we still feel the sting of death. Right now, even more than ever, we still feel the sting of death through crisis, we, we see what seems to be like a victory of death in, in people's lives around us. And so we simply wait for that day when our salvation is fully realized and consummated. So what are the implications of this truth for us as Christians? Well, there's a few things we can be reminded of when we're discussing our resurrection bodies. And they're, they come in the form of usually um, FAQs, you know, frequently asked questions for, for people when they're, when they're going through the, the passing of a loved one. Number one would be, you know, can, can Christians be cremated? My loved one has been cremated. Will, will God rise that body from the dead? Should we worry about those? And Paul's point would be, no, we shouldn't worry. Because remember that God is Creator. And there are people in church history who have been sawn in half, who have been dismembered, who have been beheaded. Don't you think God can put those bodies back together? We should know that God isn't just taking our old body, our old lifeless sack, and breathing life into it. 
Rather, that God is creating us a brand new body. So that's something we should remember when our loved ones pass away. But um, something that's um, quite often in in the news today, the understanding that people are more than their bodies, that people are not what their bodies are. And this is just this kind of thing. We see this with like the transgender movement or, or other movements that say, you know, I feel uh, I'm really you know, 50 years old, but I feel like I'm 16. Well, does that mean you're 16? Well, we have to really be honest and say, yes, we, we are our bodies. We're not just simply a soul that has a body. We are our bodies. And we identify with them in every single way for better or for worse. But Christ has, or um, we should just say that God the Father in His sovereignty and Christ has given us bodies for a reason and He wills that we should be embodied in the future, that we should have bodies and therefore we should just understand that yes, we are our bodies and we're weak and we're breaking down but eventually that God will give us a new body to identify with and to glorify Him with. But also we should just remember that the same God, and that's kind of the point of this entire passage, the same God who raised Jesus will one day raise us from the grave. We see that just to read verse 38 again. That God gives it a body as He has chosen and to each kind of seed His own body. That God who gives us a body in the first place knows how to redeem it. So how do we live? Just a couple things before we close, how do we live in anticipation of our future resurrection? What do we do on Monday morning? What are the things we're supposed to think? How are we supposed to live? Well, number one, um, it's kind of easy because Paul immediately just tells us how to live in verse 58. He tells us, be steadfast and immovable. And that's the first thing we, we should remember, that we should be steadfast in our faith. There's a lot of messaging out there um, you know, from the CDC and from faith groups and other things like that to say, don't panic, don't fear for this occasion. And that's because panic you know, causes a greater spread of fear and you know, causes stampeding and things like that. But during this time, we should figure out why we shouldn't panic. Not just don't panic for its own sake because it's good for you, but why? Well, we can rest on the truth of the resurrection and the promises of God in this passage for ourselves and for our loved ones. We should rest our faith in some solid truths. But secondly, Paul advises the believers here that they should abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord their labor is not in vain. And so the second thing we should do is simply invest in God's kingdom. Paul's point is that, yes, while we're perishing, our works that we do for the kingdom of God aren't perishable. The things that we do for the future are the things that will be eternal. So how vast our opportunity is, even right now as believers, to reach our culture with the imperishable truths, with the eternal truths, and the eternal hope of the Gospel message. That we can go to a world that's panicking, that's buying toilet paper and water, and we can tell them, hey, this world is perishing. And we've always known it's perishing. Why are we surprised the fact that it's perishing at maybe a faster rate than we might expect it? Are we trusting and are we placing our hope in Christ? In the fact that Christ died for our sins, rose again from the dead, and now calls us to Himself. When I was researching just 
other, other cases of um, outbreaks of pestilence and disease. Um, I already mentioned the Spanish flu, but there was also a time in 1665 in England when the plague broke out, and there were people running, and there were people just, it, there was a mass exodus from um, London of people who were trying to flee the plague. And of course, they were, the, the wealthy people had the most means to, to flee, and so they just got in their carriages and they went to their country houses, and the country houses were like, don't come to us, don't, don't, don't come to, don't spread the plague here. But the, the point is that there was panic in the city, and there was one pastor, um, Puritan pastor named uh, uh, Thomas Vincent, that's what his name was, and he stayed in London, and he was helping the poor who couldn't go anywhere, and this is kind of, he records his experiences there and how people were absolutely desperate for the words of life and for the words of comfort from God's word. And he says, he records this, he says, how did they then hearing, i sorry, how did they then hearken as for their lives, as if every sermon were their last, as if death stood at their door of the church and would seize upon them so soon as they came forth? as if the arrows which flew so thick in the city would strike them before they could get to their houses, as if they were immediately to appear before the bar of that God who by his ministers was now speaking to them. Great were the impressions which the word then made upon many hearts, beyond the power of man to effect, and beyond what the people before ever felt, as some of them have declared. And so this crisis in England suddenly became an opportunity for the church and for the pastors to reach out with the message of the gospel. And I would encourage you today that as we invest in God's kingdom, as we invest in things eternal, that we would reach out to our loved ones, to the ones, people around us who might be freaking out, the people who will freak out in about a week but are really complacent right now, that they would be quickened to accept and to hear the word of God and to trust in him, knowing that he is life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words and your words of comfort as we meditate on your resurrection. I would ask that we would meditate even on our own. That Lord, just as surely as you rose from the dead, the foundation of everything that we believe as Christians, that you would bring us back to life and you would give us new bodies. And not for our own sake, not so we can just have cool bodies, but Lord, so that we can enjoy life with you in eternity. And I pray for anyone here who does not know you, who does not know where they're going in eternity, that they would trust in Christ and that they would bear the image of heaven through having faith in him. So Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would keep safe, but also, Lord, that we would not hesitate to reach out with the message with which we've been entrusted to encourage others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.